In episode 38 of MobyCast, we discuss when and when not to use open source libraries in your projects. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris and Rich. Hey, guys. Hey, John. Hey, another episode of MobyCast. So, Rich, what have you been up to last week? So we are um, about to uh, upgrade our servers to PHP 7, um, which shouldn't be a big deal, but we have almost 100 different websites that we manage on our servers, and uh, all of them That's are That's a few. Using, yeah. yeah. And all of them are using A records, right, to point to the IP address, and so now all of these will have to be updated. Um, mm-hmm. And the problem, of course, is that we don't have the credentials for GoDaddy <laughs> or whatever uh, is their domain manager, so... Uh, I'm preparing this for January 15th because I know that if I send out the email, it'll take a month and a half for everyone to right. actually... We do this once a year, I feel like. Um, unfortunately, this upgrade requires an IP address change, and so it's just a nightmare. In addition to that, we're also like, well, if we're going to do this too, then maybe we should... Um, you know, Our version control is now in Beanstalk, um, and we're moving everything to GitHub private. And so now I have to move 100... Or no, 200 probably repos because we have the theme... That's version and then the core functionality plugin. So <laughs> a lot of like really, really meticulous, boring, just slog work. Migration hell. Yeah, sounds good. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Chris? What are you up to? Um, I just kind of busy with the with the normal routine. This is always kind of a, a busy time of year as we, we head into the Thanksgiving and and Christmas holidays. So um trying to get some projects done and a couple trips, um, travel trips coming up, arranging for that. Um, and lamenting the, uh, the change of weather now too, as well. So not being able to get out outside as often. And so I'm just trying to come to mental terms with that. Uh, yeah, I'm having the same difficulty. Yeah. This week I, it's it's rare that I have to do much in the way of business work or negotiation other than other than you know with new projects. But this week we ran across a client that was maybe wanting us to push harder than we normally do and and give up some weekends and family time kind of thing. And so in order to do that, I was looking at ways of of you know evening the re, the risk reward ratio that happens on our side for that. Um, and it, I would call it a fire drill, basically, and then it ended up not not needing to happen. So, lots of stress and and hard work for for then just going back to normal. I think if that had actually happened, we wouldn't be talking right now. We we would have had to skip this episode of MobyCat. So I'm glad it didn't happen. Um, and this week, I think we're going to talk about using libraries, using open source libraries, um, SDKs, open source just pieces of code that you can put into your own stuff that you build. Um, and it's a very, very broad topic and we only have 20 minutes. Um, but we just have some opinions about it and we've, we've been around, uh, from the time when there wasn't much that people were using to the, to now where there's, you know, there can almost be not much of your own code in a fully functioning application and mostly everything is open source. So yeah, let's, let's, let's jump in. And I think your career history I just want to hear from your perspective how you see that, you know, just kind of give a couple highlights of 
when you started seeing open source getting used a lot and how your attitude has changed about it um, over the past several years, Chris? Yeah, I mean, being a being an old timer in this game, um, I, I definitely did witness the the transformation and the the emergence of open source. So that was, you know, early 2000, um, the 2000, yeah. so 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, um, where it really started to, to kind of take root. Um, and the whole idea of, um, just open source as a community, uh, there was a couple, um, couple books written about the subject. I think, um, the cathedral and the bazaar, I believe is, is one of the ones, um, that was pretty popular at that time to kind of like, it was like, Basically, at that time, like you said, open. So it was kind of like the it was like the Bitcoin of its era in a way. Right? It, was, <laughs> it was it was it was the technology buzz term at that time because um, it was so new um, and it was kind of like this really and that controversial maybe too, huh? Like people had strong it, opinions for and against. Well, I mean, up until that point, like software was something you paid for, right? Mm-hmm. And like this was this was like I mean, this is a, the big linchpin of just Microsoft, right? Its whole. Mm-hmm the beginnings of that company and its core philosophy, right? Like right. you, like software was an asset. It was fear, it to be fiercely protected by the, by the company and people paid for it. And if you didn't pay for that software, if you, if you, if you got it by copying it from someone else and you didn't pay for it, they would go after you. Like, and they right. were very much going to protect themselves against that. Right. And so, and that was true with, with, you know, most of the other companies as well. I mean, the only, at that point, um, I think things like, like Unix, uh, basically software coming out of the universities, um, was like the equivalent of, of, of open source software, but it was really just like big pieces of software, right? It was like operating systems or compilers. Um, it really wasn't libraries at that point. So, so it was, this was a very big, um, radical change, philosophical change for the industry. Um, but, um, it definitely, you know, obviously it's, it's, uh, it caught fire. Um, and people realize, you know what, like there's something, there's something nice about this, about having a community where people can, um, leverage each other, they can share, um, and we can get a lot more done by working together as opposed to make everyone pay for, for everything that we do. Right. And when I started my career, it was like, Boom, here, here we are. Open source starts today. Like you graduate going to become a professional software developer. And like that very day is like, hey, there's this Linux thing. Like you should try installing it on this machine. And it's like two days later, I did it. But yeah. none of the drivers work. Um, <laughs> so, but, so yeah, like exactly when I was kind of starting to, to decide what software was all about in terms of a professional career is exactly when this was happening. And I'm sure you and I probably touched the same open source projects to begin with, Linux, obviously, at first, and then probably Apache, and then maybe, I don't know if you ever touched JBoss, Tomcat type stuff, but that was, that was kind of Unfor- my Unfortunately, I like to, to, to forget that part of my, my career. <laughs> but then, yeah, then a few years later, it's like along comes, you know, I think that one of the next big things to happen was, you know, there were, there were obviously libraries, um, jar files that you could, th- that were open source that you could include in your Java projects. But the next really big leap forward was probably Ruby, Rails, and that community, Gems. Um, and I don't know that you you delved much into that world. At that time in your career, were you playing much with open source and getting involved in those, any of those communities? No, you know, I'm going back. I mean, I, I was uh, very much... 
a Microsoft fan. I, I worked there for a while um, and kind of definitely cut my teeth on on that that tech stack. So um, around the time that Ruby was was kind of gaining hold and and uh, and starting to get some adoption, um, I was still pretty much into the to the Microsoft stack. So .NET. Um, so um, still in that space. So right on. And there, there were, there were some, there was some open source stuff in that. Sure. Space, but not nearly yeah. as much. I mean, there, there was like no package manager for .NET. There is now. I mean, there, right, there right. eventually did become one, but um, yeah. Well, it's it's that sort of mentality that started to take hold in the Ruby world that that has only increased since then that we really want to get at today. Because um, in the Ruby world was the first time you just saw every little thing, anything, um, you know, throw it on GitHub. I guess it wasn't even GitHub at the time, but throw it somewhere. Um, I'm trying to remember the name, rubygems.org or something. Um, throw it there and let other people use it. And it could be, you know, something as big as an ORM or for mapping object objects to relational tables in your database to uh, a little widget, you know, just a tiny little text box with, with a special feature. Um, and people were just grabbing gems and you would see Ruby projects with 20, 30, 50, 70, 150 gems in them. Um, and now, now almost everything, you know, the whole world has kind of moved over to JavaScript and Node and React. And um, I think it's only increased. What would you say, Chris? Like, has is, is that been your first real, like, I, I know you did some work in using Python, but, but you're also deeply involved in JavaScript and using JavaScript to write production code has that been kind of the place where you've seen the most action in, in libraries and available things yeah I mean I I, I, I think that um, NPM probably is like the biggest mm-hmm. um, repository for packages so it, it really you know like I said kind of rails I think definitely was before node um, and yep. it it started it kind of had this concept and it, it I don't think it had its own repository right I think um, it was just other things sprang up around it um, to to do so and you know it, it I forget what the the numbers are but it was kind of like you know after a few years there was like 25,000 um, packages like in the in, in the rails community type thing um, no came on the scene I think in 2000 2009 2010 and uh, pretty pretty soon after node was built that's when it was like hey we need a package manager for this. So let's go ahead and, and, and build NPM to, to do so. And it just, for whatever reasons, um, you know, node took off and the whole concept of, of having this reusable code as packages took off. And so NPM itself grew very, very quickly. And so I seen the charts before where it shows the adoption of like modules that are available for node versus rails, like how long it took NPM to get to the same size as rails. It's, and it's compressed by it, by, a, um, by, you know, like a three X, um, time. Right. Time right. Right. So, and I know now it's, 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 it's just un, ungodly numbers. It's like, you know, billions of packages, downloads, you know, a month type thing from NPM. Right. It's really exploding. And this conversation is about to take a hard left turn, but before it does, I just want to say that I myself even remember somewhere around 2010 or 11, just having an argument with somebody who was a bit of a programming language purist. 
um, and trying to argue with me about some technical benefit of whatever it was that they were using. Maybe it was Scala. I can't remember. Um, about why I should be thinking about that and using that instead of at the time I was using Ruby. And I argued back pretty fiercely at that time. I was, I, I specifically remember this conversation just saying, you know, you have no idea what you're saying. It doesn't matter that the, you know, these esoteric technology improvements that, that in the language you're talking about are exist because I can accomplish the same business work in the language that I'm using and the community around it is so much more powerful. Um, and that community is really the future of software development. I just remember having that argument and being feeling so right. I was like, yes, this is, this is what it is all about. Now is where we take the hard left turn. I still do think that that's important, but I think that there can maybe be too much of a good thing. And I think that, uh, that's what we're going to talk about kind of for the rest of this conversation is where is that line? Where is the balance between overusing open source and using just the right amount of open source? Yeah. What it, Chris, let's talk about the, what we see among people that are sort of still more early in their careers as they, you know, they've, they've graduated with a degree or they've come through a boot camp, or they've, and they've got maybe two or three years of experience being a developer. What, what do we typically see? in terms of their relationship with open source. Yeah, I mean I think for the for the most part it's it's like it's kind of always been there for them, right? Like haven't known a time where it wasn't there. And so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like just taking it for granted like it's just part of the, the the software code base. And so definitely see the I guess just implicit trust. Um mm-hmm. like just you know like hey if if I can go find something that does what it is that I need to do, just go ahead and use it. Um and yeah. I'm done, right? Like, this is great. Um, and now I can basically build software by just gluing things together, um, you know, kind of like a, 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 or a Lego approach, right? Just stacking these, just attaching these blocks together type thing. Um, exactly. Yep. And so it's sort of the default behavior feature X. Oh, let me go Google it. Does it exist as an open source project? Okay, done. Wow. Now, now I can move on to feature Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, the open source community is great and there is um, so much good work that's that's yes. being done there, that has been done there. It's like, it's impossible. <laughs> we want to be careful about this because what we're saying is a little controversial, right? So we want to make sure we, it's very obvious that we're pro open source, but yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, it's not even possible to build software today without like, right. without the open source community. I mean, and to build modern software for like the cloud, right? Like it's just, it'd be really hard to yes. write to write it without leveraging like some just core pieces of just software that has been open sourced or right and it would be wrong from a business perspective right you would be spending sure yeah value yeah. that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be yep absolutely so it's definitely it's it's an important part of this um, foundational piece but it's um, you know you you also it's it's a double edged sword too right because it's like you need to be thinking about um, just a whole bunch of uh, particular facets, um, criteria as you decide to go use this software. Like, what what does that actually mean? Like, you're you're actually you're now trusting code that was written by someone else. Um, you probably are not even looking at the code, um, you know. And it's you've now sucked it up into your your project, and for all intents and purposes, it's now your code base, and you are now really responsible for for maintaining that and for you know making sure that 
that has high fidelity and integrity. Hey, this is Rich. Please pardon this quick interruption. We recently passed an internal milestone of 10,000 listens, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the support. I was also hoping to encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review or a rating. Positive feedback and constructive criticism are both incredibly important to us. So give us an idea of how we're doing, and we'll promise to keep publishing new episodes every week. All right, let's dive back in. Chris, before we started this conversation, we were kind of planning, and you said, you know, would you use this code if, if you, is this as good as the code that you would write? Like, would you, would you consider it your own? And when you said that, kind of the, the warning bell that went off in me is, I think a lot of people, especially in their first, say, f- let's say five years of, of work, they may assume that any other code is better than their code. There may be just a confidence issue, right? So, oh, if it's on an open, if it's on the web and it's in GitHub, it's probably better than anything I would write. So let me just use that. That way I can trust it because mine is not trustworthy. And so I think we need to break that. That's, that's not okay to assume that all other code is better than anything you would write yourself. Right? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know even if you're context, you know your own problems, you know, you know, like what your customers want, you know what the rest of your application is doing. Give yourself some credit. Your code is not, um, is not default bad code. So don't assume that open source code is better than yours always. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I, if you have any, any experience whatsoever um, with, with writing code, if you've been doing it for any amount of, of time and studying, studying the craft, studying the, the material, like you should have some pretty good thoughts, right? And you should have some, mm-hmm. some base level of confidence. And, and even if you are new, I mean, you, you just by looking at the code, you can be learning from it. And I mean, there's nothing to say that you, you won't see something, a, a way to improve it. Right. So I think, um, being being inexperienced is no excuse for not being able to take a take a at least a critical look at something and decide whether still whether or not like does this feel good and and you could even you know being more inexperienced it doesn't necessarily have to be like I'm going to go evaluate the efficiency of this function and the way that it was developed and you know is it the really the the best algorithm like you can pop up a few levels and say like hey this piece of open source software that I'm bringing in like does it have unit test um, you know, does it have, exactly. you know, is it, is it commented accordingly? Is it, is it, are the files laid out in a way that, um, you know, makes it easy to kind of understand like what it's doing, um, and how it's organized. Right. I mean, those are all things that don't require a lot of experience. If it's in um, GitHub, does it have lots of issues? Do they look like they're getting attention? How many other people are using it? Exactly. So I, yeah, I, I don't think it matters. Like the, whether you're you're inexperienced or you've been you know a seasoned veteran, um, when you're when you're looking at a, adopting some some piece of open source code, um, you need to to make that a considered decision, right? Mm-hmm. Because you because you you essentially are saying like whatever code I'm you've written, I'm now bringing it into to my own project, um, and I should treat it with the same kind of um, you know, respect and concerns that I would have for, for code written by a, a fellow colleague, right, on my team or myself. Right. So what would you typically want to use as open source? Like what, what would you, 
Instead, so we've said what we typically see newer developers do is, is there an open source project for this feature that I'm about to do? Okay, there is. I'm going to pull it in. Instead of having that be the default mode, what do you think is a better default mode? And it, and it can't be like, I'm going to make a very considered, well-researched, just, you know, it's got to be a little bit more easily to, easily digestible sort of MO or sort of like way of going about making this this decision than, than something that could lead to analysis paralysis. Like, I, I don't want to suggest that everybody gets into analysis paralysis. So... How do we how do we tell people when they should go look for open source? Yeah, I, th- I think um, for for most projects, you have like this like a core set of just fundamental open source projects that make sense for you to leverage, and and you can do that without really thinking twice about it. So like if you're in in writing um, Node um, code, like things like Express or or Winston or Something like SQLize, if you're if you're working with relational databases or the the official um, the Redis library, um, obviously the um, AWS SDK module, like these are all just like fundamental things that you just they're being depended upon by you know millions of other pieces of code. Um, they they're getting millions of downloads. There's lots of eyes being looked on this stuff. Like you don't have to really think twice about it, and that's you should not be writing that type of code anyhow, right? Like this, this mm-hmm. is the kind of code you can depend upon um, and you should leverage that. So I think, you know, just about every, and regardless of what platform you're on, whether you're Node or, or Rails or Go or Python, they're all going to have their equivalent, like just foundational frameworks, yes. libraries, right? That they depend upon. So, you know, and so, but that should be relatively small. I mean, you're, you're probably on the order of maybe like five to 10 like libraries or frameworks that you that that would fall into that category. Then after that, you get into something that becomes much more application specific. And those yep. um, again, now these are where you start making considered choices, right? Um, and you definitely want to. I mean, I'm very much a believer. Like the the fewer dependencies that you have, um, the better off that you're going to be. Um, so if you can it's 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 just a, a trade-off right of like how you know if you do have a library out there an open source library that does exist you know mostly or exactly what it is that you need done and it's a, it's a and it's an appreciable amount of work um to go duplicate it um then you know it, it makes sense for you to go and 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 look at that and say like hey should i should i bring this in like let me let me vet it um if you're looking at something like i need to do um I don't know, like something like iteration over an array that can deal with null values. Like, mm-hmm. re, like that's not a package, right? Like, go write the three lines of code um, right, and make, right. it, make it, make it, make it, make it your own package, you know, type thing. Um, I want to, I want to say, like, there's got to be like a rule of thumb. Like, is it going to save me at least three days or at least a week or something? If it, if you feel like if I could do this, I could not write code for a week. I mean, then it maybe feels like it's worth ex- at least exploring. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it depends on too, like on just like where you're at, you know, in your career and how much experience you have. I would, I would actually kind of like default to like the, the less experienced you are, the bigger that time frame should be Mm -hmm. to say like, right. So if you have more experience then you're, you're going to be able to better take a look at the package and say, um, is this well-written or not? Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, like, all right, I'll save the five hours because this is this is great or whatever. Right. Yeah. 
not only that, it's just like as an experienced person, like the only way to get more experience and better at coding is like by writing code. Mm-hmm. And if you, instead of writing a code, you're, you're just bringing in someone else's code, then you miss that opportunity. Right. Yeah. So, yep. And and I want to add that this is like the, one of the best reasons to not use open source is to hide the complexity of something that is generally expected that, that developers will use. And I just, I just have to tell a personal story. I made this mistake myself on a project that I was working on with you. So you were working for the client and I was working for Kelsis. And this was about at least like eight years ago, probably. Um, and I was writing some, or maybe, maybe not, maybe six, but anyway, I was writing some iOS code and I knew I needed to persist some stuff on the client and have that get synced up to some data on the server that, and you were writing some APIs for that. And, you know, I was coming off the heels of doing a lot of work in Rails and there was, there was a framework that somebody had written that was getting a lot of attention that, that kind of made writing iOS code feel sort of Railsy. And I was like, oh, I got to try that. That sounds great. Um, and it just ended up not being great. It was just the worst POS I have ever dealt with. Um, and I remember asking you, can you reformat the JSON this way and that way? Like, cause I was just dealing with limitations in the library and, and really uh, what I was trying to avoid is that iOS still to this day has this fairly complicated, um, persistence API called core data. And especially at that time, you really had to understand the threading model around core data, or you could just, just ruin applications. Um, and the threading model was not, it was, it was sophisticated. It was multiple weeks of study in order to become proficient with it. And I just was like, oh, I can use this library and then I don't have to use, I don't have to learn that because it'll take care of it for me. Um, well, guess, guess who ended up learning the library eventually and getting rid of that? <laughs> That's a stupid freaking framework. Me, I, you know, it was like, sorry, client, I've got to start over. I literally started that application over again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not less in the hard way. Um, so don't make that mistake. Learn the libraries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe just quickly, like some other heuristics or criteria that, that I look at when deciding whether or not to use an open source module. You know, look at things like, you know, how many other folks are, are using it. Um, like if it's on a GitHub repo, like how many stars does it have? How many, how many other um, dependent applications that it has? Consider who wrote it as well. Like, I mean, there's, there are well-known folks in the, in the community. So obviously, you know, if it's someone that's more, that has an established name for themselves and a great track record that you know about, um, that's going to lend more, more credence, more, um, should, should give that more weight. I mean, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, folks that you, that don't have that, um, that history or that background doesn't exclude them, but it's just like, it's obviously it's, it's bonus points. If it's, if it's someone that has a, that has a track record that, that you can, you can, you can look at, look at the commit history too, as well, right? Like how, how, when was the last time this thing was updated, right? Is it, is it three years old? Is it was four years old since the last commit? And, you know, that's going to be something that's a, that's a bit of a code smell. You know, you may, you may want to think twice, three times, four times about whether or not you, you pull that in. Like I said, look, look at the code itself, right? Does, is the code clean? Is it, is it, can you understand like what it's, what it's doing? Um, is it laid out well? Does it have unit test or does it have the appropriate comments? Um, like look at look at things like that um, to uh, you know give you an idea of, of of the overall quality of it, and then you know you can obviously look at things like you know issues. Like, are there a lot of issues? Um, paradoxically, it's kind of um, I think the more issues something has, 
it kind of usually indicates like it's actually something you can rely upon um, for the most part, as long as they're not just just sitting there and they're just stacking up, right? Usually things that have lots of issues means that there's lots of people using it. So if it has like 70 open issues, it might mean that there's a million people using it, right? Or, or Agreed, yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, those are those are some of the things I think you should look at um, when deciding whether to use some, some open source software. Cool. Well, I think that that basically paints a pretty clear picture. Um, yeah, hopefully some folks are listening to this and adjust adjust accordingly. Uh, don't save yourself two hours. Do the learning and and use the the solid packages, the ones that the ones that really are useful. Yeah, and and you know one other thing too to to definitely make sure you leverage is like so security is definitely it's a big oh, issue, security, yes. right? Yeah. Um, like <laughs> this is like I mean. This is just, it's software out there that anyone can write, right? Like they can do whatever they want. Like you can have like node modules that they get access to the file system. They can write whatever they want, read and write. And so, you know, security is a, is a big issue. Um, but there are, there's lots of tools out there in the communities to kind of help, help with this, right? So mm-hmm. recently, like in the node community, um, there, there was, uh, there was actually an independent company that was doing um, security evaluations and and um, kind of like uh, just certifying modules as being as being clean. Um, and then NPM bought that company, and now it's actually just part of NPM. So you can just do mm-hmm. an NPM, NPM audit, um, run that command, and that will go and 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 scan for any known vulnerabilities in the packages that you're using. Um, there's other um, scanning solutions out there as well that that do this they either go against like a cve database or um actually just at the application level as well so um so definitely like that this is another big huge consideration when when using open source software is just like what are the security ramifications right you don't want the text the fancy text box that you got off of a react library putting a coin miner into a browser Mm, yeah Yep, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for this conversation about open source and using libraries. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for putting this together, Rich. Later. Talk to you next time. Bye. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash 38. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you. I will see you again next week.